It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. The Wise Money Show is brought to you by the attorneys at South Bank Legal, First State Bank, Diane Bennett and the Inspired Homes Team, and Bethel University Adult and Graduate Studies. Welcome to another episode of the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. Thanks for being here, friends. My name is Mike Bernard. I am your host. I'm also one of the certified financial planners on the show. With me in the KFG studios, my business partners and friends, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Is it possible to pay tax on capital gains in a year where you never sold any investments? Well, the answer is yes. And if you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense, you're right. But we're here to help you understand how this works and how to avoid it coming up this hour on the Wise Money Show. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if this happens to you, I suppose that's a good thing as long as you've done every other thing possible to avoid it. But we'll explain what all that means, what this nonsense means. If you've got questions for the show, we'd love to hear from you. We have an unbelievable question coming up from Iris that I'm hoping to hit in the second half of the program. Reach out to us with your question. You can call or text 574-222-2000. That's 574-222-2000. You can find us online. I believe that's where Iris sent her question in, wisemoneyshow.com. Some of the question right there on the right. We do get a bunch of questions all over Facebook and YouTube and all over social media. Wherever you're at, just search the Wise Money Show. You'll find us there. Like and subscribe to the content, and you can leave questions there as well. All right, so... Do you have investments in accounts that are not tax sheltered? I've lost them already, guys. I've lost them. <laughs> like you can't talk about this stuff without having your eye. Yeah. So anyway, it, hopefully you're doing comprehensive financial planning. You're working with a CFP, and one of their roles is to provide clarity, confidence, but also creativity in your financial life. So if you're saving up for your future, you're doing it in a tax sensitive way. That's part of their job. But if you've exhausted all of those great options and you still are saving dollars up into an account that doesn't have any tax sheltering available, well, how do capital gains work? How do capital gains work with mutual funds? What's this mean? Let's start at the foundation and build up from there. Yeah, so if we're talking foundationally and different types and and character of things that will be taxed, so capital gains will be taxed. If I buy something for $10 and sell it for 12 there's a gain there. And depending on how long I held it, it will determine whether it's a short-term or long-term gain. So that's a capital gain. That's the show today. And there, it, within this show are embedded about seven other shows. But we're only going to do one, and we're going to talk about capital gains. But if you said, well, what's the difference in the different types of income? Capital gains are one type of... Uh, I wouldn't call it income, but something that will hit your tax return that you pay taxes on. You also have earned income, and that's if I go to work and get a paycheck. That shows up on, I believe, line seven of my tax return. I am paying income taxes on that, ordinary income tax, uh, at ordinary income tax rates. And then there's also something called passive income. So passive income is if I don't show up and I'm getting a check. So if I- I'll take that one. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, if I if I live on a, a, a farm and I have a, a hundred acres, but I don't farm it, I have the local farmer do the farming, and he gives me a hundred bucks an acre. 
That is considered passive income. And each of those have their own tax rates. We're talking about capital gains today and the you know the weird stuff that happens with mutual funds. But capital gains rates, Josh, you want to hit those real quick? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on what you're selling, how long you owned it, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And then it also looks at your other sources of income. So if, if you're in a lower tax bracket in typical years, you might get away with paying no taxes on things that you sold at a profit. Lo- love that. Zero percent capital gain. Absolutely. Love it. And, and that's only been around for, you know, a, a few years. You, you go back uh, to the beginning of our careers and that didn't exist. No. So this is kind of a special opportunity. We often think of capital gains tax rates as a great opportunity for people to generate income on the tax return, but not get clobbered with taxes. Mm-hmm. So if you're in either the 10% tax bracket or the 12% tax bracket with all your other income, you can get away with paying 0% tax as long as it's long-term capital gains. So you have to have held that investment or that asset. You sold it for a profit after at least a year. That's right. If you buy something and sell it at a gain or a profit inside of a year, you're going to get hit with all the normal taxes that apply to interest or paycheck money, rental income, that sort of thing. And, and and by a year, it's 12 months. So don't think I can buy something in December, sell it in January, and I'm good. So that's the 0%. By the way, quick disclaimer here, we're talking about federal taxes. If you live in a, in a state or locality that has its own tax, this is going to trickle down there. You, there. There is no 0% capital gains on the state unless you live in Florida. And uh, that can catch people by surprise absolutely. as well, because maybe you did some careful tax planning, you sold something at a profit, and really paid very little or no tax at your federal return, and then all of a sudden you get to the state and you owe some money. It's mm-hmm. because, again, as you say, the states are not generous in this way that the Fed is. They don't have a 0% tax bracket. So if you're in the 10 or 12% federal tax bracket, your capital gains federally should be zero. If you're in the highest tax bracket, your capital gains would be 20%, and you're probably also going to pay some net investment income tax, extra Medicare tax, blah, blah, blah. If, if you're in the middle there, if you're not in the low rung, you're not at the highest rung, then you're going to pay 15% capital gains at the federal level. So Which pretty, is still a good deal I was by say, historical I mean, standards. That's a good deal. So why are we saying this is such a bad thing? You need to try to avoid it, and then let's actually get into what happens with mutual funds. Well, we want people avoiding taxes legally (laughs) all the time, right? Every form of tax. So if you can be more tax efficient, the less money that you send downstream to Washington, D.C. or to your state, uh, the better, because it's more money that can stay intact and growing for your future. So we, we do care about that. But sometimes capital gains can create surprises for people. And that's really kind of the theme of this show. When you own mutual funds... And that mutual fund manager is buying and selling investments on your behalf and on behalf of thousands of other investors as well. They're generating often capital gains as well. And those gains can get pushed through to your tax return. And and they don't send you a notice necessarily, you know, midpoint of the year saying, hey, we're busy selling stuff at profits. You're going to get hit with some tax at the end of the year. Often you don't even know it until the very end of the year arrives. If you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> right. Normally, you don't find out until tax time, and then you get mad at whoever prepared your return. Right. So, so, <laughs> right. so this, this, is, this can be a surprise, and, and one of the ideas is we don't want folks to be surprised about these things. 
we do want people to pay taxes because no one's no one's ever no one's ever lost money selling at a gain. So we do want you to have capital gains, but we want you to understand there's there are more efficient and less efficient ways to approach this. But our hope would be because you think about it, if you've got a retirement plan at work and your things are bought and sold within that, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is at the end of the day, when the money comes out of the retirement plan at work or your IRA, you're going to pay ordinary income tax rates on that. Mm-hmm. Capital gains rates are always preferable to ordinary income tax. So if I can pay capital gains, if I can buy something for less and sell it for more and pay capital gains rates, I, I'm loving that. And when you, when we say 10 to 12% tax bracket, 12% for a married couple is $80,000. And that's after your deduction. So it's almost... So you, could, you could have almost a hundred thousand dollars of income, but this is where this is where planning is a key component to your decision making process. Okay, so we gotta we gotta make a little more sense of that here because it is still extremely confusing. And I know you're listening right now, and and you're have a wide understanding here. But we're gonna we're gonna make that a little bit more crystal clear, and then talk about how the things that you can do can actually help you prevent and avoid some of this extra tax and surprise tax. So, and then plus, what does 2020 look like? So we've got a lot more to come here on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. How are mutual funds taxed? Can it create an enormous tax surprise for you that you need to be avoided? In fact, are there things that you could be doing all along the way in the planning process to avoid the surprise completely? Yes. Actually, we're talking about all of those things. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. Here with me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Every episode of the Wise Money Show is on our YouTube channel. Also, if you haven't caught it, we're a couple weeks in, but we're also sharing our e-learning course called Financial Foundations, all about helping you really wherever you are, but get a solid foundation in your financial life. Did have some people call and say, hey, how do I register? No, guys, it's free. It's completely free. We've got e-learning going coming out of our ears right now because of Zoom and all the social distancing and everything. But then also, schools are not teaching wise financial principles. I learned how to write a check in a checkbook in school. They don't teach that stuff anymore. We're teaching it. So Check us out on the YouTube channel. Just search The Wise Money Show. Make sure you subscribe to it. Turn on notifications there. And we're creating a playlist of all of the uh, financial foundations. There's five courses. You can catch it live Wednesdays at 10 a.m. right there as well. So, all right, we're talking about uh, capital gains. But real specifically, the confusing thing that happens with mutual funds and capital gains. So, Josh, before we go into application and how to avoid this, can you just tell us again how that works? Well, in the spirit of just laying a foundation... We need to recognize what a mutual fund is. It's essentially your way of entrusting money to a professional money manager, someone who pools together assets from you, hard-earned dollars from lots of investors, and then they make the choices from day to day on what will be invested. They're actually taking your money and buying things like Apple 
or Ford or Coca-Cola stock. They might be investing in real estate or in bonds, but whatever they're investing in, they're the ones making the choices day to day. And you may not know exactly what's in that portfolio at any given moment in time because they're making the judgment call. Yeah, you're not seeing all these decisions, all these transactions, all these adjustments. They're doing it. That's right. And when they sell a stock for a profit, we call that a capital gain. We explained that in the first segment. But that capital gain creates a, a form of income that someone's going to pay tax on. And what you need to understand about a mutual fund is that it's a pass-through entity, which means they pass that income to you as the investor. You're the one who has to count that as income on your tax return if you own these mutual funds outside of your retirement accounts. That's right. That's why we care so much about tax shelter. That's the sheltering. That's the tax sheltering. That's where that term comes from, is all that activity that's happening in there, either within the mutual fund you never see, or within that account that you're actually doing and you do see, it's all sheltered from tax until you pull money out of that actual account. So if you have an individual account or a joint account or a trust account, blah, 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 if you don't have a that, that money in a tax sheltered, that's when this issue with mutual funds really is a, a problem. Yeah. And, you know, it could be a year like this that it becomes a problem as well, because if you think about what that mutual fund manager has been doing over the past decade or two, they bought into some companies at low prices, maybe back in the, the recession, the latest recession, uh, the housing crisis and everything, um, bought at low prices, and they've grown in value tremendously over the longest bull market in history right? These, these stocks, these assets have built up. And if they're ever called upon to sell out of some of these, either because it's just a prudent move that they choose to make, or lots of people start cashing in their mutual funds and say, hey, give me my money back. I, I'm nervous about this environment we're in now. Um, when that happens, they have to sell those at a profit. And that, again, is creating potentially a tax problem that gets pushed through to you. And then once again, you're not aware of this problem. Like you, you can't even find out in September, hey, what are my capital gains going to be from my mutual fund? Uh, you don't know. You don't know. Sometimes, sometimes the company will give you some sort of advance warning, maybe early December. But normally, normally this capital gain distribution, because that's something else we didn't hit. Oh, gosh, there's there's short term cap gains, there's long term cap gains, and then there's capital gain distributions. Um, we're talking about capital gain distributions from your mutual fund. They don't even do that, quote unquote, distribution until maybe the last day of the year, the very last trading day. And then you'd actually have to look up your fund online and then look at that what that distribution was per share multiply by the number of shares blah 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 most people don't even know this until they get mm -hmm. their tax form in the spring and you still might not even know this if you're if you're listening and you say well wait a minute i own a mutual fund outside of my retirement plan and i've never gotten a distribution of capital gains it, it, the reason why you're thinking that is typically most folks have it set up where the distributions automatically reinvest so you wouldn't see that. And so you say, well, what's the case to have it automatically reinvest versus automatically pay to cash? Well, you would want it to pay to cash in a scenario where you've got a mutual fund that you don't really want to own anymore, but there's so much gain, you can't sell it. 
Yeah, in other words, you, you bought the mutual fund years ago. It's grown in value mm-hmm. over time. And if you go and sell the whole mutual fund itself, mm-hmm. then you're creating a capital gain. Okay, so, so this is where it ties back in. So now you understand the story problem. What, how does, what can you do about this? How does comprehensive financial planning address and solve this problem? Well, comprehensive financial planning, there are six areas of comprehensive financial planning. And you say, well, what areas does this touch on? This touches on tax planning. Again, when the question, when we ask folks, hey, who does your tax planning? If the answer is, well, I, you know, H&R Block takes my stuff and gives me a tax return every year, that's tax preparation. So think tax planning. And tax planning says, what What's the, what's the mix? What kind of tax diversification should I have in my various investments? And then we go to investments and we say, okay, well, with investments, how should those investments be structured within the various tax shelters or tax unsheltered buckets of money? And then, of course, it hits retirement planning because which which types of structures should you draw from first? And then finally, estate planning, because if it's not in a ta- tax sheltered accounts, automatically you have beneficiaries attached to them. You just need to write in a name. Uh, sometimes, oftentimes, people omit adding beneficiaries and thinking about estate planning when they're dealing with these non-tax sheltered accounts. So, And then a cash flow as well. I mean, so it, it hits five of the six directly. Totally. And... Um I love the fact that you guys are focusing or mentioning tax shelters. When we talk about tax shelters, we're referring to things like a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. If you're investing money for education, you, you might think of a 529 plan. But what that does is it allows you to have a bucket that you can invest some money in by mutual funds, for example. And inside of that bucket, we don't care about the capital gains that occur, are occurring because you have sheltered yourself or prevented those from landing on your tax return. So that's really the very first thing that comprehensive financial planning, your CFP, is really tasked with, is looking at all the potential tax shelters that are available to you. And then through the planning process, when you look at all six areas connected together, identifying which of these opportunities do you take advantage of. How many times have we sat down, guys, Kevin in particular, I'm thinking of one example, with extremely intelligent folks and say, why is this money over here in this joint account? You could be funding a Roth IRA. And they look at us and say, I didn't know I could. I thought I made too much money. I didn't know I could contribute to that. Mm -hmm. Right. And and with with the Roth IRA and these other shelters, a lot of times if, if someone is not guiding you, if you don't have a Sherpa helping you get up this mountain, you're not going to know what's available to you. Yeah. And there, because there are different techniques within the tax code that you can take advantage of. And again, you just want to have a plan. That's right. What's the plan to minimize taxes over my lifetime? Your comprehensive financial planner, again, should be um, clarity and confidence. But this is the creativity. This is the, well, I don't know what I don't know because I don't do this all day long like you guys do. Your financial planner should bring that. They're going to bring a couple other things as it relates to solving this problem. And then we need to talk about how does this relate to 2020. So that and more coming up here on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Did you do any tax loss harvesting earlier this year 
Uh, do you not know what I just meant? Uh, or will you have another opportunity? We're going to talk about that here in just a second. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard, coming to you from the KFG studios with Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Every episode of the Wise Money Show is also on podcast. Gosh, it's nice to get out in it's springtime here in northern Indiana. And uh, I'm going for walks. It's good stuff. Throw the uh, throw the headphones in and listen to podcasts. You can check out every episode of the Wise Money Show on podcast wherever you listen. Google is changing their Google Play to Google something. and But we're there. We're at iTunes. And just search the Wise Money Show and catch every episode right there. Okay, we're talking about uh, capital gains and how that impacts your tax situation. And we're, we've, we've explained it, and we're talking about how the comprehensive financial, financial planning process with your CFP actually helps. You got to be looking for all and take advantage of all the best tax shelters available. What else does comprehensive financial planning do? Well, we talked about tax planning as the process of kind of sniffing out these types of tax saving uh, maneuvers that you can be doing in your financial life. And I, I was reminded of one that uh, we saw many times this past spring when the stock market was in its downward spiral, kind of a scary stretch. It was fast and furious going in the wrong direction, but it created an opportunity for some people because they had some assets that were kind of at depressed prices. And sometimes selling out of investments at a loss can create some amazing opportunities especially if you get out of one investment and right back into something very similar. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're creating a paper loss that almost gives you a coupon to erase some of these capital gain worries that we've been discussing on the show in the first two segments. And I, I have a client, for example, who every year um, they're going to have $25,000, $30,000 worth of capital gains distributions that just get pushed onto their tax return. And we were able to completely eliminate that concern by doing some tax loss harvesting earlier this spring. And what that meant was it, it allowed them to potentially drop into a lower tax bracket. It maybe opens up other tax strategies for them, maybe doing a Roth conversion. Um, it, it basically just gives you some flexibility in the, in the moves that you can make later on in the fall. That's exactly right. You've got to do this actively. You probably weren't thinking of it on your own. And if you've been listening to the entire program and you heard us talk about how capital, uh, how mutual fund managers buy and sell and do things, your mutual fund manager was not doing this for you. They don't care about your tax situation. They care about their returns that they're posting to try to attract as many dollars as possible. So don't think, well, I've got an active mutual fund. They probably did this for me. No, they did not. So. Right. Um, so, yes, uh, tax loss harvesting for sure. Kevin, you were bringing this up at, at a break. Uh, tax efficient investing as well. That it, it has a certain term in, in the financial world. But that's another thing that working with your certified financial planner, they're going to be on the lookout for, well, what types of investments should you have in which type of account? And in, and in um, non-tax shelters, you should have a certain type of investment there. Well, you should, and the and the big question is in my non IRA, non retirement four hundred one k type in uh, investment structure, should I be focused on tax efficiency or investment 
return efficiency. Yeah, right. And so this is where, again, it gets back to planning because I want to say, hey, grab the shirt off the rack. It's one size fits all. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. because there are some strategies if you don't have any access to in your retirement plans at work and you don't have something outside of those other than taxable accounts, you might want to lean into having something that's return efficient. Absolutely. I I like that word, tax efficient investing. Let me throw another word in there. Tax efficient selling is also something that you need to, to be paying attention to. And this is part of the role of your certified financial planner to look at the stuff that you're selling and help you figure out, should you be doing something a little bit different in the way that you get back out of that investment? I'm thinking of uh, you know, a, a client who has some farmland who he, he wanted to get that farmland into his grandson's hands to kind of keep the family tradition of farming going. He was going to sell it to him and wanted to just kind of sell it outright just to, because that's what he thought everyone does. But we actually were able to structure it in an installment sale where it sold over time and he didn't get clobbered with taxes the same way that he mm-hmm. would have in one big fell swoop. Um, things like owning your home for two years out of the past five years, you know, staying in that house at least two years allows you any profits that are are generated up to a half a million dollars for, for a married couple or 250,000 for an individual, that's all tax free to you. Yeah. So just thinking about how long you hold things, we already mentioned the one that if you buy an investment today and you hold it at least 12 months then at least when you sell, you're going to be exposed to long-term capital gains instead of short-term capital gains. These are the things that your certified financial planner has to keep on their radar screen so you don't have to be worrying about it. The mother of all things that your comprehensive financial planning, your CFP is going to do for you in, in, in comprehensive financial planning is a tax projection. So some sort of tax analysis, and when we do comprehensive financial planning here, but we also do taxes. And if someone is hiring us for comprehensive financial planning, and we're also the one preparing their return, we can very efficiently create a tax projection. I mean, Josh, the, the, the farm sale example, you couldn't have done that without a tax projection going out multiple years. Right. You can't figure out this tax law selling and and um, creative Roth conversion strategies and so on that couple with that without a tax projection. And so that really kind of synthesizes all potential tax planning opportunities, tax strategies. You're using a tax projection. By the way, it's going to help avoid surprises as well. Okay, so let's bring this down to 2020. We have no idea what the rest of the the year is going to look like from an investment standpoint. Is, Is it possible that we get to the end of the year and it's a you've lost money. It's a, it turns out it's a negative year in the market, and actually have a capital gain show up on your return. Is that possible? Yeah, it absolutely yeah, is. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's years like this that are kind of the scary ones for financial planners because we we remember years you know coming out of the early two thousands. The, the 1990s were this amazing run-up in, in value, and then the stock market starts falling, and people have to start paying taxes because their mutual funds are doing these capital gain distributions we've been talking about. So you could actually have a year, maybe this, who knows, if this turns out to be one, where your investments are down, and yet you have 
adverse tax consequences because you either weren't paying attention or didn't jump on an opportunity when it was presented. Yeah, the other a scenario is a mutual fund manager needs to sell certain positions to raise cash because there's with a mutual fund, there are inflows, that's people putting money into the fund, and there are outflows, people saying, hey, can I have my money back? And in order to meet the demand of the outflows, they may need to trim certain positions. And if these are long-held positions with very low cost basis, you could get to the end of the year and say, well, my fund is down 10%, but yet I still have gains that I have to pay taxes on. Think about it. If that mutual fund was invested in large growth U.S. investments and bought Amazon a long time ago, now Amazon probably takes up a disproportionate amount of that portfolio. And as they need to redeem dollars and give people money, they're probably selling off a little bit of Amazon maybe to trim that position or Apple or Microsoft. So that uh, it, it is confusing, but at the same time, it's, it's extremely, extremely possible. And that, and that also can happen. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Okay, so we've got a little bit more to hit here, as well as a great question from Iris. I think Josh and Kevin are going to be stumped. That and more coming up here on The Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. The Wise Money Show is brought to you by the attorneys at South Bank Legal, First State Bank, Diane Bennett and the Inspired Homes team, and Bethel University Adult and Graduate Studies. Got a great question from Iris coming up that really fits nicely into today's topic about tax shelters and capital gains and all of that stuff. So that's coming up. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being with us. My name is Mike Bernard. Here with me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Make sure you're staying up to date on all Wise Money content. You'll find us online, Wise Money Show. Dot com And then everywhere on social media, wherever you're at, we are there as well with all the wise money content that we're pushing out. So subscribe there, like, follow, and leave questions there as well. Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, whatever, we're there. Check us out. All right. Uh, well, before we get into Iris's question, let's put the wraps on this. I mean, what other action item should someone be aware of? I, I, I think the first is... Uh, be aware that even if this turns out to be uh, a, a bad, stinky year in the stock market, you might have a tax surprise. So of all years, do a tax projection. Do a tax projection. It's gonna. It might cost you some money, but it's worth it. It'll avoid surprises and identify opportunities. And if you're doing comprehensive financial planning, those I, the the I, identifying opportunities, then you'll know which of those you should be going after. Um, and that's the other thing, I, I guess, uh, in, if the stock market is this volatile, if it makes sense, and I like the Roth IRA. I actually just had that come up this week. A uh, client was saying he, he was kind of regretful that he hadn't been able to just take some fun money and buy some individual stocks or some mutual funds at the lows back in March. And he said, you know, if, if there was another opportunity like this, could I just get an account established. And I said, you know, this might be a scenario where using a Roth IRA um, to kind of play with some money, at least if you're buying and selling, especially if it's short-term st- stuff, uh, those capital gains will will not be an issue for you because they're in a high enough tax bracket that it, it would be a concern. I hate that idea. 
Great. Because tell you really this is what I <laughs> this is what I would tell them. In your Roth IRA, do this, set it, and forget it. Put that money in there and let it grow over the long term because these individual stocks that you want to buy, um, you're going to want to use those as capital losses uh, on your tax return um, because that's almost certain what you're going to have. Oh, Kevin, that hurts. Yeah. I, I, well, when you're I buying know. at the bottom of the market, the, the chances of – I don't know. I, I was actually – that, that was supposed to be a pun there. I know. <laughs> Yeah, famous last words, no doubt. I mean, Warren Buffett, right? The the what do we call him? The smartest man in the world, the greatest investor ever. What whatever you want to call him, Mister. I put eight billion into the airline industry and, and uh, was able to turn it into four billion. Like, yeah, I'm, he thought he was buying at the low as well. So it's the the I thought he was selling at a good time and apparently missed that a little bit too. I maybe <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's all tricky. So, so again, I mean. Doing comprehensive financial planning, the game has changed. We got CARES Act, we got, you know, next round of stimulus, we've got the SECURE Act. I, I was I talking with some folks yesterday, and they're affected by the SECURE Act. And most people say, I have no idea what the SECURE Act is. Oh, was that the next stimulus? No, that was <laughs> that, that changed the game completely. Yeah. So you need comprehensive financial planning and and tax planning, especially. I just not to toot our own horn but i mean that that is a competitive advantage of having a team approach where your certified financial planner can be elbows away from your cpa and they're collaborating i mean so oh my goodness speaking of i mean that's exactly what iris needs so iris is 23 here's what she wrote in last week i'm a longtime listener and love the show I am 20, and I didn't, that, that, by the way, those are her words. Uh, I'm a longtime listener and love the show. I'm 23 years old, and I'm a non-U.S. citizen doing my graduate school. I've been in the U.S. since 14, 2014, so I am a resident for tax purposes. I have a boyfriend who's living abroad. He is a non-U.S. citizen as well, but plans to move to the U.S. within three to five years. We're planning to get married very soon in the U.S. After marriage, can I use money from my graduate school stipend to contribute to my future husband's IRA using something called a spousal IRA, even though he won't be living in the U.S. Finally, you might be thinking, okay, that's enough. She goes on. Finally, what are the tax implications if I had to move out of the U.S. and wanted to use my 401k, my IRA, HSA, 529 plan within the rules, but uh, after age 59 and a half? Keep up the good work. So, um, Kevin? I'm just kidding. Yeah. So, the, no, the, so you, you have to take this a, a, a bit at a, a time. A lot of layers here. Yeah, because there are several questions within this. Yeah. So I – go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, one of the, 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 the pieces of information that we need some clarity on is how that stipend is, is uh, being taxed. Exactly. Some types of graduate grants and things like that uh, are not considered earned income. They don't show up on a W-2. But this is one of just the standard requirements. So anyone listening, this applies to you. You have to have W-2 income. You have to have paycheck-type money in order to contribute to an IRA or a Roth IRA for yourself or your spouse. So that's the first thing that just needs to be kind of buttoned down as, as a fact pattern here. That's exactly right. I assume that it was because she stated, I am filing a U.S. return as a resident of the U.S., even if you're... Even if you're um, a non-citizen, you've got to file a U.S. return. And then second, the U.S. is 
the most complicated tax code on the planet, <laughs> and they want to tax your worldwide income. Okay, now they might give you a foreign tax credit if you actually earn that in a foreign country, but they want your worldwide income all reported on that return. And if you're married, that includes your spouse. Therefore, when you get married, even if your spouse is is somewhere else, it's going to be a joint return here. Their income is going to show up on your U.S. return. And I'm going to say, don't run to the bank and do this because there might be exceptions to exceptions to exceptions to this. But I'm going to say that would mean you could contribute to a spousal IRA um, as long as you've got enough earned income and, and so on. Because in the eyes of your tax code and the U.S. tax code, you're married and you'll have enough income. So there you go. Yeah, I think the, the, the more the, the best application of this question is. How does it work if I have if one spouse has earned income, can the other spouse have an IRA as well? So you can put a hundred percent of your earned income up to six thousand dollars into an IRA. And you can if you have a spouse, if you made twelve thousand dollars, you can fund yours and theirs. If you're both over fifty, you each get a, an additional thousand dollar catch up. So you could each do seven thousand dollars. So think it, it one income earner can cover two people in the funding of various retirement plans. Iris, you didn't say Roth IRA, but I'm going to assume if you're in graduate school and you have a stipend, and so um, you know what they say about assumptions, but I'm going to assume there's not a ton of household income make sure that's a Roth IRA so that you, a couple of reasons why. Number one, you have access to the basis from the day you put it in moving forward. Um, The other thing is that gets your Roth IRA going over the five-year time clock. But here's the problem. And that's the, this is where the question goes from really easy and basic to really complicated. I'm just kidding. This is, it starts (laughs) out complicated, finishes even more complicated. But that is, what if you let the money grow and sit there for a long time. And now you're retired, you want to take the money out and you're no longer living in the United States. I mean, that if the, if you, if we don't like that answer, that means you should not do that Roth today. Now here's the deal. The answer. Well, not necessarily because if I take that out later and it's a Roth IRA, the U S isn't going to ask for any taxes. Are you, are you sure? And could there be, so it depends on the treaty between the U.S. and the country that you're living in, there could be double taxation depending on the, the treaty. You would think the of all of your options, the Roth IRA should be the safest. But you go from a non-resident U.S. where now I'm, I'm, I'm no longer, uh, I'm not living in the U.S., so I don't need to file a U.S. return with, house, with worldwide income. Now you draw something out, all of a sudden you have something to report on your U.S. return, and now you've got to claim all this, and... It depends on the treaty of the country you're living in that determines, well, is that going to show up on your U.S. return and another return? Just just north of us here in Canada, there's an awesome treaty, a tax treaty between the U.S. and Canada, and yet you've got to be very careful what you invest in because there could be double taxes and they could negate. Basically, Canada says, we don't recognize this stuff. And the U.S. says, nah, we don't recognize their stuff. And so we're not going to allow either of those. It gets really, really messy. So the, the bottom line, Iris, 
at 23, even with a, you know, just a stipend and so on, you need comprehensive planning because you need to, if you're thinking about doing this, you've got to work with a CFP who says, I love the complex like we do. I, let, let me roll up my sleeves, let's get dirty. And then working with your CPA to say, let's figure this out. That is exactly the right message right there. Because, you know, it, implied in all this discussion is the answer to, to one question, and that is, if you are a non-U.S. citizen, can you contribute to an IRA or a Roth IRA? The answer is yes there, but should you yeah. is where the certified financial planner, the CPA, can collaborate and really customize the answer to you and what your long-term future is. Because if you're really going to live in the U.S. for two or three decades, but then retirement for you is back home from you know the the, the country that you originally came from um maybe maybe the answer should be hey let's be careful here yeah that's right i don't like that answer because i want to use tax efficient strategies but it's you got to figure that out for you and your situation i gotta talk another quick one in here from ray in south bend he's 66 hey i'm still working and on my company's health insurance can i still contribute to my hsa since i'm not on medicare that's the answer right there, or the key to this question, are you on Medicare? And um, what a lot of people, uh, the, the age 65 hangs up a lot of folks because um, th there's sort of this belief that when you turn age 65, you can no longer contribute to an HSA. But that's not really the trigger. The trigger is, have you had a disqualification due to your health insurance structure? As soon as you qualify, or, or sorry, as soon as you enroll, in Medicare, Part A or Part B, that's when the HSA is no longer an option for you. That's right, because one of the one of the requirements to funding an HSA is that you can't have any other health insurance. And you mentioned enroll. Well, typically Part A is an auto enroll, depending on your situation, and so you need to make sure that you're not on Part A. It's an auto enroll when you apply for Social Security. Mm -hmm. And so at age 66, Ray, you may be tempted because you could keep on working. You're, if you're at full retirement age, you could keep on working and draw Social Security. But when you go to enroll in Social Security, they're going to sign you up for Medicare Part A and possibly Part B as well. And then all of a sudden, the HSA is off the table. Mm -hmm. There's a big risk here if you were furloughed at this age group and said, all right, I'm going to jump on Medicare and then you go back and go back to work. There's a big risk here. We're not gonna be able to talk about it today, but that's gonna be a future program. Um, very, very confusing and very appropriate for this time of year or this time in, in our lives. So, all right, I hope that was helpful. That's all the time we have for today. On behalf of Josh Gregory, Kevin Corhorn, myself, and all of us at KFG, have a great weekend. We'll see you next time for The Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated.